Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a faulty part of the Specgram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins conference room is hypothetical watch wearer, Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left is the guy who invented the stale toothbrush, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from a grotto deep within the bowels of the Veronia Cave in the Caucasus, Bill Sproul. Hey. Also joining us today on the program is special guest, Tim Pulyu. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me. I love the studio. And now that I've already pronounced your name, did I pronounce it right? Is it Pulyu? It is Pulyu, like push me Pulyu. All right, not Pulju. No, no, I've killed people for that. <laughs> Tim's a linguist who teaches in the classics department of Dartmouth and has also been writing for Specgram from the time it was still wearing braces on its feet and on its teeth. Thanks a lot for joining us, Tim. And to get things started for us, we're going to do some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Give it to us, Trey. All right. Before we start, uh, Tim, do you want to correct David? I actually teach in the linguistics program and occasionally in classics at Dartmouth. Linguistics program? What's that? It is the interdisciplinary program in linguistics and cognitive science, to give it its full and grand and glorious name. Is there not a department? There's not a department. We're too interdisciplinary for that. (laughs) You say because of that, you could actually give me a diploma, right? now over the internet. I could, but it's very expensive. (laughs) Do you have your credit card? Okay, I I do. And I also have my social security, so just get ready. I'm about to give you the numbers. Okay. All right. So here we go. They are five. All right. So did you get that, Tim? I did. And you'll get your diploma by FedEx. Perfect. All right, now let's do some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Okay, you guys know the drill. I've got three language-related items. Two of them are true. One is false, and you guys have to figure out what's what. After you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. Today's theme is morphological matters, Hmm. and here we go. In POMO, a Hawkin language of California, all syllables are consonant vowel, except for a mirror infix used to mark the past tense. And when that's used, the first syllable is copied and reversed. So, for example, C would be gozuba, but saw would be googzuba. Item number two. Irish Gaelic has discontinuous numerals. So 13 is three dieg, but 13 houses is three hach dieg. So you would translate that literally as three houses teen. Number three. In the Tibeto-Burman language, au, plural is the default for nouns and singular forms are marked. All right, who wants to go first? Okay, uh, just real quick. We're supposed to find the true one or the false one? <laughs> <sighs> if it wasn't against the law, I'd strangle you myself. You're supposed to find the one that's false. Why don't you give it a try? Okay, okay, and then I've got it. This one's done. This one's done. I speak all three of these languages. I don't. All right, so the second one, the discontinuous numerals, I'm actually not sure if it's true or false, but I'm going to say it's true because I really want it to be true because that is so cool that I have to put it in a con line. That's just really, really cool. So, uh, okay, so number two is true. Number three in um, the Tibetan Burmo language, owl. So that one, whatever fact you said about it was true. What was it again? The default for nouns is that they're plural. The unmarked form is plural. Oh, yeah. And the singular form is marked. Oh, give, give me a break. Come on, come on. We're, we're all conlangers here. This is simple. This is easy for us. Okay, that's easily acceptable. The first one, however, that has the hallmark of a treism. That sounds a little puzzly to me. It sounds a little spec grammy to me. So I'm going to say that the first one is false and two and three are true. 
All right. Your choices have been recorded. Who wants to go next? I'll give it a try. I think number two is true on the general principle that I will believe almost anything of Irish Gaelic when it comes to adding complexity for the learner. <laughs> number three, the Tibeto Burma language. I am also willing to believe that is true, if only because an enterprising linguist could look at a language that has no plural marking at all and say that the zero fix is that mark that is the marks form is on the singular. I mean, that on a slow day, that would get you by. <laughs> Number one is the one I think is false. You know, it's really because if you started getting forms like gog, zuba, if you're going to have syllable final consonant, why not just go ahead and put the thing at the end of the first syllable? I think over time you just end up with Gazaba. There you have it. So number one is the false one. All right, so we'll let our guest go last. Go ahead, Keith. I'm going to have to agree with the other two guys on this one. To me, it just doesn't make any phonotactic sense to have coda consonants, but only in one morpheme, and to allow apparently any consonant to be that coda consonant. So I just don't think that, you know, speakers can't be expected to learn a system like that. It doesn't make any sense phonologically. Now, just to show you that I, I am thinking about it, I actually I have to admit I'm kicking myself here because I read papers or heard talks on two of these three languages, but I don't remember a single fact about any of them. So I should know the answer, but I'm just going to have to guess. I think one is the one that's wrong. The discontinuous new numerals in Irish Gaelic. That sounds likely to me. I think it shows that it has very important theoretical implications. It shows that numerals should always be treated as morphology in theoretical models. <laughs> I'm going to go with that one as true. The uh, plural being the default form for nouns in owl, I think that is exactly the sort of thing that a grammar writer would love to highlight, whether it were true or not. And so I think <laughs> that's likely to have been claimed. So I'm going to say that one is true also. All right. Tim, you going to make it a clean sweep? I'm tempted to, although I hate to agree with David since I understand that's bad for correctness, but... <laughs> Number two sounds correct to me. I think some sort of racial memory of my Irish ancestors speaking that way, so that may be correct. <laughs> Number three is certainly true of some languages, although I have no idea if it's true of all. Actually, I think they're all correct, but since they can't be... Just for the heck of it, I'm going to pick number three because the languages that I know that in, it's not necessarily the case for all nouns, but for nouns which come by their nature as more plurals. And also because if I just agree with everyone else and we're all correct, then I attain no glory from that. But if I disagree with everyone else and I'm correct, then I will have great glory and uh, they can put it on my gravestone. So I'm going to say that number one and number two are correct and number three is false. <laughs> so I believe that everyone agreed that the Irish Gaelic has discontinuous numerals, and in fact, that is true. Awesome. Other Celtic languages also have discontinuous numerals. That's crazy. That bit at the end, the dig can be glossed as teen, as in you know, 13, 14, because it's actually a different form of the word for 10, so that's pretty interesting. Right. Now, on to Tim's great glory. Did you consider the possibility of great shame? <laughs> I did, but uh, I've lived with great shame for so much of my life that it will be no great burden to add further shame to myself. <laughs> Okay, so the mirror infix is in fact something I made up, and in owl, plurals are the default form for nouns, and that's true in a few other languages as well. Let me add the other little bit of information that made me feel that number one was false. You know, regardless of which way the infix was facing, it makes no sense to use reduplication to indicate the past tense, which is what I believe you said it was, correct? Yeah. Now, if anything, it should be used for the progressive, the habitual, maybe even the future, or 
or if you had even said an imperfect, I would have bought that. But the past tense, no way. No way. You did you see and you you really saw, you saw, saw, it's over. Do you think the Indo-European pasts derived from a reduplicated perfect are not really real past tenses? Clearly they're not. They're actually okay. just present tenses um, that we that we call past tense. Okay. You have to point out that those are going to be hypothetical if they're Indo-European, right? Well, no, it's like Latin. I guess Latin is also hypothetical, having been dead for <laughs> several thousand years. There you go. <laughs> Oh, man. So anyway, I think we're kind of glossing over the important bit of information here, which is that I believe I just got a point. Holla! Yeah, but you got the same point that everybody else got. <laughs> it's not me. a very impressive point. Oh. Yeah, but you knew you were just trying to hog the glory. <laughs> now, Keith and David have eight points each, Ooh. which is one less than me with nine, and I'm one behind Bill with ten. And our guests are currently four for nine. Way to go, Tim. By the way, don't, don't you lose a point if four people or more get it right? Well, since only three of you did, it doesn't really matter. Hey. Now we know why you did major in math. Okay. Oh, darn. Shoot, you're right. Uh, yeah, three or more. Whatever. Listen, the number that's supposed to be what I want it to be. That's the answer. You should have been an economist. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for basically adding to my great glory there, Trey. And believe me, it was great for me because this is the start of a long streak, a long, long streak for me. Just wait for it. Anyway, so thanks very much, Trey. Uh, that was it for LDLNL. And next up, we have some language news. But first, a word from our sponsor. Okay, sure. Language Made Difficult is brought to you today by the Linguistic Society of Minnesota, don't you know? Thanks again and welcome back. Now for some language news. Freya Peterson, spelled the wrong way over at the Global Post, informs us that Twitter and other social media platforms is causing girls to become more aggressive. She says that someone else says that Twitter in particular, with its 140-character cap, is forcing users to become more direct in their communication so that they come across as curt or terse, two words which the Internet says mean bad. Uh, and since apparently guys were already thought of as jerks, the only noticeable result is that girls are sounding more aggressive. Uh, so what is it, Trey? Harem or scarum? <laughs> I had trouble diving into this article because one of the, the main premises seems flawed to me, which is that texting and tweeting leads to less deliberation when it comes to word choice. Mm. Maybe it's because I'm not a teenage girl and haven't been for a long time. In my experience, it's totally the opposite. <laughs> I choose my words very carefully and I try to make them as short as possible and it annoys me. And that's what makes me a more aggressive tweeter and texter. Uh, good point. I, I have to say that usually I'm with Twitter, especially I'm always running up to the edge of the 140 character mark. And so what ends up happening is that I get past it and I see the little thing there that says negative seven. And I think, OK, what words here are absolutely necessary? Can I contract the word broken hmm, and so on? Usually without much success. Uh, Bill, have you gotten into Twitter very much? Absolutely none. I'm approaching this by thinking of what should be a reverse effect, which is that when you give students a page target for papers, something which typically causes them to write more than they would normally like to, you would think, according to this logic, that what they would end up writing would be massively polite. <laughs> that is not what happens. So a student who really wants to write 250 words and you're forcing them to write 800, you do not get a marble of polite indirection at all. So I think the logic here is flawed. <laughs> 
building on what Bill said, I think, again, the popular science reporting has mixed up the correlation and the causation. Assuming even that all the claims of the report are true, maybe the girls are more aggressive than Kurt because they're so unhappy that while texting and tweeting, they have destroyed their level of meaningful social interaction and they're having to do violence to the beautiful English language to make it all fit. They're actually upset at Twitter. Yes. And so upset that they have to use it that they are basically trying to do violence to it. As in their heads, they are basically thinking in paragraph-long chunks with enormous words, none of which are fewer than 13 letters. I like this. Have you listened to teenage girls talk? I have one in my house. They can talk for three minutes and it's one word. I actually wish that this story were true because, unlike Bill, I don't have the problem with students not writing enough. I have the problem of them not being terse or curt enough so that I don't know how many times I've gotten a paper that begins with, since the dawn of time, mankind has wondered about whatever, and goes on for about two or three paragraphs along those lines, and I put a big red X through it and say, get to the point. So I'm actually, this has given me the idea of perhaps limiting my students' papers to maybe not 140 characters, that's a bit short, but perhaps 1,400. And if they can't finish, then they fail. (laughs) (laughs) Take tweet limit. Submit tweets instead of papers. No, not tweets. They need to submit tweet uh, limit. No, no, no. They, They can do it with tweets. They'll just use 10 of them. Yeah, yeah. They can't use tweets because I won't subscribe. They have to write it on paper, preferably with pencil or maybe a pen. Oh, so you haven't gotten a Twitter account either, Tim? I have not, no. But how exactly do you let a bunch of strangers know, like, what you had for breakfast, where you happen to be waiting for a bus or a taxi, and what you think of American Idol? I think there's a crazy old man corner somewhere on the Dartmouth campus, and he goes and hangs out there, like with the rest of them. No, I actually have reporters and paparazzi following me around. And it's generally broadcast in the New Hampshire tabloids. Oh, I see. Well, you know, that they're probably all going to Twitter as well. So, you know, LOL, there goes Tim off to the angry man corner again. You can easily imagine that Tim has a sort of gaggle of teenage undergraduates following him around, tweeting his every move since the dawn of time. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, most tweets that are coming out of New Hampshire are probably about you, but nobody ever knows that because they never actually get to your name because all the tweets get cut off since the dawn of time. Professor (laughs) And then that's where it stops. (laughs) Something that I was actually thinking about because somebody else said it, so I won't take credit for this, but you have this 140-character limit on a tweet. How does that mean anything to a Chinese speaker? Are their tweets basically full paragraphs? Keith? Are you looking for an answer? Yes. I don't think people in China use Twitter. They have equivalent things, but I don't subscribe to Twitter or any of the Chinese equivalents, so I have no idea. But just think about it. So we're limited to 140 characters. And so if you think about how long words are and include the spaces, hi, how are you? That's a fair amount of space. But 140 characters in Chinese is probably, it's nearly close to 140 words. Yeah, maybe like 110 or something. So that's quite a bit of information that you can pack into a single tweet. I find that interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, most of Chinese classical poetry could fit all into one tweet. (laughs) Yeah, that is just incredible. By the way, this is just a curiosity question. Can you write and read Chinese? 
yes. Okay, so it's not just uh, spoken. That would be something to discuss, though, because I'm only half literate. I can read, but I can't write without the aid of a computer. Ah. I can't. Write I hear that that's not memory. just you. Yeah, no, no. I'm I not the that. only one, but I'm in the most extreme case. <laughs> uh, but I hear that native speakers are having trouble writing without sure. computers now. Sure, that's right, um, because the less you write a character, the less quick it is to recall how to write it. Those of us who never write characters maybe have a two, three hundred character productive vocabulary as far as actually producing them with a pencil. <laughs> but native speakers are going to have still several thousand, even though... For uh, now. They, for now, because they, in their educational life, have several thousand characters that they wrote several million times each. So they've got them burned into some of those neural pathways there. Uh, right, but don't tell people that you're semi-literate. Tell them you're 100 years ahead of the curve. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, actually, kids growing up nowadays in the United States are probably the same way. Pretty soon, we're going to have a generation that will not have written by hand at all either. And they, in fact, just communicate via text messages. That was actually a point that was brought up in the article. They talked about how there are people who don't capitalize their sentences in job application cover letters or use textees in school essays. They are. They're called the unemployed. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. This is a clear warning sign that certain individuals should be sent to the uh, Soylent Green Farm if you get my drift. <laughs> oh, that's nice and filial. I like it. I have learned quite a bit from, I think, this illuminating and wonderful article. So this is the end of the segment. I am being direct. KK, thanks. Bye. LOL. Anyway, now for some real language news. According to some reporter, there was some university that did some study where some people, male and female, who spoke a bunch of different languages, all recorded a series of texts in their native language. After they were finished, researchers chunked the speech stream that they got from this recorded text into syllables and then checked the time of the utterance, taking away long pauses, to get basically an information density index for each of the languages. The results? English is slow. Chinese is slower. Spanish is fast. Japanese is faster. And I think that what we're supposed to get from this is that English and Chinese speakers are lazy and Japanese and Spanish speakers are just human dynamos. Is that correct, Keith? Something along those lines. I mean, I, I thought this was really fascinating until I thought about it a little while and realized that what we're really just saying is that people who have languages with long words, they get to talk faster. And that's because if you have long words, you can reduce syllables because some of the syllables aren't that important. But then, you know, why would people reduce syllables? Well, it's probably because the speakers get bored or else they fear that their listeners will get bored if they don't hurry up and say something, right? So I think it's really just a question of, it's not a question of information density. It's a question of, can anybody's attention be held that long with these, these long words? Sorry, I kind of phased out there. I'm, I'm sorry. The words were too long. Yeah, same here. <laughs> Darn well, I was listening, and your math is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the length of the words. The languages that have less information-rich syllables have to have the longer words in order to get enough information to actually distinguish one word from another. And David, what you said, it wasn't that English is, is slow. English actually has the highest information density in the study. Right. And so we are speaking it more... Efficiently. Efficiently. Efficiently, yes. And the, the Japanese speakers have such a low information density that they have to work really hard to get all the information out and that's why they have 
to talk so fast. Uh, and that's actually an interesting point. There was a, a second article that examined the data in this study. And what they discovered is that basically the Japanese language is simply not good enough. So basically the idea is that though Japanese is spoken very, very quickly, it actually takes a Japanese speaker more time than any of the other languages studied to convey information. Apparently, Japanese would need to be spoken even faster in order to keep up with how many meaningless syllables are stuffed into their language, or at least that's what I got from it. I guess that basically whoever created Japanese did a really, really poor job, right? I was thinking about this. I actually have a theory, and that is that if you think about it, we know that the Japanese have a fetish for technology, right? So the way I see it is, is the zeitgeist of the Japanese language is heading for more and more simplified syllables until they have only two syllables, which then they can use to communicate in binary code with all their electronic devices. I have a few reactions here. First, the trade is gold star for slipping the word zeitgeist into his utterance, <laughs> but also that when I read this story, my first reaction was, why would anybody be interested in that? But then I thought, well, many other people think the same thing about things that I'm interested in. I did note that it was published in some obscure journal called Language, I think, and not in Speculative Grammarian. <laughs> I think we may have rejected this article because it simply was not interesting enough for us to consider, or maybe because the math was over all of our heads and Trey was on vacation. <laughs> We pretty much can't count on the fact that Trey is the only one that ever reads any article that has a number in it. So we kind of rely on him <laughs> to tell us what's interesting and what isn't. I do have a, a possible idea here, though. So the idea is that, you know, Japanese apparently comprises these words that are very, very long with meaningless syllables. And so they have to speak it quickly to get through all of them to say anything of any worth or any value. But I guess this is why it's spoken so quickly. And English, our information density allows it for the language to be spoken so slowly. What if we just started adding arbitrary syllables to words? words in English to see if that could actually speed up our rate of speech. One view would be that those arbitrary syllables would be inflections, and that's why we ditched them off of Old English. British English actually does that, only they add extra meaningless words to their utterances so that they say things like, Japanese conveys information, more than other languages. <laughs> I don't speak British English. Possibly Bill, who I believe is a native speaker of Yorkshire dialect, judging by his accent, could tell us more about this. Well, I can't tell you more about British English. I did, though, have a sort of quibble with the study in that when they're talking about how much information is packed into the syllables, I could not tell exactly, because, of course, I did not read the article in language. I read the, the statement. I could not tell exactly how they were calculating the information density. I'm guessing they may have just said, well, how frequent are these syllables in the language? Or let's look at where and imagine we just picked a, the, the bag of words model. We just picked up a bag of words. How likely is it that we would pull this word out instead of that word? How many syllables does they have? That kind of thing. If that's what's going on, they're not looking at a couple of things. One, they're not looking at how predictable that syllable was in context relative to the syllables that came before it. Mm. Number two, they're not sort of asking, well, what kinds of meaning are being expressed. I mean, sometimes the fact that you're using a longer word does express a kind of meaning sometimes. In student writing, for example, it means trying to sound intelligent. 
it doesn't always work, but there you go. If we take the context into account, though, in the sense of how unpredictable is this word or how unpredictable is this syllable given what's come before it, we have an, a, a potential effect that would be measurable and interesting, which is that when someone is saying something that's almost completely predictable, they should accelerate all things being equal because there's really not as much information there. This might explain politicians in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> and also PR representatives. There's nothing actually in what they're saying frequently, uh, especially if you talk to like PR flacks or people that are spinning for a candidate. Everything they say is already predictable. So given what the study is saying, if we let this continue for a few generations so that the language can adjust to having these modern media outlets and people whose job it is is to say predictable things, they should just emit kind of a machine gun-like rapid-fire volley of syllables at incredible speed. And that would actually be interesting. Are you saying that Japanese people speak quickly but meaninglessly, like PR flax, and English speakers speak slowly and meaningfully, like, uh, I don't know, wise professors of some field other than linguistics? I can't really answer that without knowing what the Japanese speakers are trying to mean. We're acting as if the only meaning in the statement is what maybe a formal logician would turn the statement into in terms of some notation or something. I don't know how they calculated that. That's a pretty pathetic way of approaching language, though. A lot of those extra syllables in Japanese could be precisely positioning the social status of the speaker relative to the hearer, that type of thing. Without knowing that kind of information, we don't really know how much information density there is. That's a good point. Good point. Well, Bill, I'm just hoping that no one at the Linguistic Society of America is listening to this and heard you claim that there is more to semantics than simple truth values, since I think it's been known clearly since the 1950s that that all that's included in semantics, and anyone who declares otherwise has to move to the West Coast or Michigan or someplace like that. <laughs> Form of exile. Well, yeah. they do kind of warn you by calling it semantics. I mean, it's some antics. It's not all antics. So <laughs> there's... They at least tell you they're only accounting for a fraction of what's there. But particularly in this kind of study, the fact that it's only some of the antics is particularly important because the information density should be kind of an omni-antic measure. Mmm, omni-antic. Sounds delicious. <laughs> Yeah, I have a comment about this article at a different level. Tim mentioning the LSA reminded me of this, although Tim apparently is not familiar with the journal language M. It's actually sort of an important one, and I was really disturbed to discover that well, we didn't read this, as Bill mentioned, we didn't read this article in language. We read it in time, science. And I'm a little disturbed that language has now taken to publishing articles which can be summarized in time, because it used to be a fundamental principle of linguistics that what should be published in a journal as respectable as language should be something that could not possibly be interesting to the general public. It could only be interesting to linguists. And I'm afraid that language looks like they're trying to move us in the direction of something like biology, where, you know, you could teach it at the high school level, and that's not what <laughs> linguistics is about. 
I would like to point out that no speculative grammarian article has ever been mentioned in Time magazine. So I think that establishes the relative scholarly quality of this journal language, as you called it, versus speculative grammarian. <laughs> uh, truer words are never spoken. All right. Well, from a true English speaker, let me just give you all a great big boy howdy and golly gosh. And uh, up next, we're going to have a brand new segment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Okay, now language make difficult is no longer brought to you by the Linguistic Society of Minnesota, don't you know? Okay, welcome back. If you spend more than three minutes with a linguist, you're both making a very poor life decision and also probably discussing a number of speech sounds that don't occur in English, e.g. those clicky noises that African languages make. True, languages other than English are silly, but native English speakers may not know that certain sounds used in other languages actually appear in English. Don't believe us? See for yourself in this next segment we're apparently calling phonetical things you know that you may not know that you know. So, Trey, why don't you start us off? Give us an example of some sounds that we may not know that we actually know in English. So there are a couple of standard examples, I think, that come up sometimes in phonetics classes. We'll start out with those. One of the most common ones is that we actually have both an aspirated T in English, which is sort of what you typically use in, for example, the word typically. And then there's an unaspirated T, which occurs after S's. So if you say the word stop, or if you if you think the word stop, but don't pronounce the S, that T that comes out when you say top is unaspirated. And this is really useful for example, people learning to speak Spanish, they can learn to make unaspirated T's, unaspirated P's, and unaspirated K's that give you a better Spanish accent. Another uh, simple example is a glottal stop, which occurs between the uh and the o in uh-oh. Some people don't realize that in other languages, that's actually a full-fledged consonant. My personal favorite is a lot of people know I have a get up on my hobby horse about people who claim they can't trill their R's. And it turns out that a lot of people who say they can't trill their R's actually do know how to because it's the same thing as the machine gun noise that a lot of kids make when they're playing uh, cops and robbers. So that brrr is actually a trilled R. So there are a couple of examples. <laughs> you know what's interesting? I'm sorry, just, a, just an aside. That machine gun noise always begins with a B, doesn't it? That's true, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it would help people trill their R's if they think of starting them with a B. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think about that next time I'm speaking Spanish. Rosa. <laughs> <laughs> Some other noises that we've heard, so for example, I think when a lot of people think of languages from Africa, they think of clicks, which are these sounds that sound just so exotic, but we have a lot of them in English. One easy example is a noise that we make to urge a horse to kind of get going, and it goes something like this, and then, you know, you say after that, you say, in kind of a, a gruff cowboy voice. But that sound can actually be used in a language. I can't think of a word offhand, but I know it exists in... in what, what's, the, what's the XH in uh, Mosa? Actually, maybe that one is a lateral click. Is it Mosa? <laughs> no one knows. Oh, come, come on, nobody knows? Ah, oh, jeez. No one knows. <laughs> oh, I forgot. We're linguists. We only study English. All right. So another one we have is, of course, the alveolar click. It's a different type of click. But anytime you see something spelled T-S-K or maybe T-I-S, it's not actually people saying tisk 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 or sick sick sick. It actually stands in for the sound. Now that sound that we kind of use when we disapprove of people, and it's kind of like I almost want to say a nasal alveolar click. Uh, and it's also the sound that occurs at the beginning of the famous television program, 60 Minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Does that sound have a name in English? How do you refer to that sound in English? You spell it T S K. Tisk, tisk. That's how it's been traditionally spelled. Or oh, we also call it clucking. Yeah. 
That's sort of the ultimate spelling pronunciation is when people actually say tisk tisk. Yes. Yeah. The horse example has always disturbed me because I think there are very few English speakers who actually make that sound to cause a horse to move forward nowadays. <laughs> In fact, I myself have never used that sound to make a horse go forward. The only time I've ever heard it is not in cowboy movies, but in linguistics classes or linguistics <laughs> textbooks. I think basically what it is now, it's the sound that you use to make a horse go forward if you've never actually been on or around horses. That is probably true. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. that would be me. So if I ever need to make a horse go forward, I will make sure to use that sound, and I'm sure it will work like a charm. Whereas, you know, people that actually ride horses, they have their own secret lingo. They go around saying, you know, horse, forward, and then it goes. I'm thinking a segment on uh, cowboy linguistics is really overdue here. <laughs> I did have a couple other sounds, although one works only in regional dialects, but the first, I at least, and many other speakers say words such as sick with an ejective stop at the end, at least when it comes utterance finally. So sick with an ejective. Mm. place that we use that all the time is when somebody has misheard us and they're looking for a keyword that ends in a voiceless consonant. Sometimes we will produce that with an ejective. So it's like, uh, uh, let me give that a sip. Did you say sip? No. No, I said sit. Now, actually, that's aspiration, isn't it? That wasn't an ejective sit. Well, sometimes you sit. Sit. Yeah. Yeah, the K, I think, is regularly ejective. Now, my other example, though, might work better for some people than others, and I noted it when I lived in the foreign land of Texas, which has some English speakers, <laughs> where when you want to address someone you don't know, or even that you do know, and say, how are you? Instead, you say, how are ye? This ending with a perfectly good high front rounded vowel, mm. which many English speakers, even in Texas, claim to be unable to produce. Yet they say them constantly. Oh, man, if we're talking about vowels, I didn't even think about vowels. We have one, I don't know, it sometimes comes out as a front-rounded vowel, it sometimes comes out as a back-unrounded vowel, but the California pronunciation of food. What was that word? Of what? Food. 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 Come on. That's the California shift. They also front their ooze in California Valley Girl dialect. <laughs> so they get feed. I can't pronounce it, but the man on the Bank of America phone, I can mention them because they're one of our major sponsors. <laughs> The man on the Bank of America phone, when you call him up, he says, for English, press 1. For something else, press 2, uh, which always annoys me. <laughs> He's fronting his vowels drastically as a Californian. <laughs> My wife is from Northern California. She has a high front rounded vowel in one word and one word only, and that's in the word stupid, which she always pronounces stupid. <laughs> no idea why. How often do you hear that word? <laughs> <laughs> now, son, that's a personal question. <laughs> okay, so getting back to the non-mutant dialects. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, there's also a really nice ejective example. It occurs in a very specific episode of The Simpsons in a very specific place. But if you think about this type of example, you can see how it could come up a lot. In this episode of The Simpsons, Bart has agreed to sell Milhouse his soul for uh, $5. Anyway, after the transaction is complete, Milhouse says, Pleasure doing business with you. And then Bart says, Anytime, chum. 
and he ends it with a nice ejective P. And the reason, of course, was to get him to think he was saying chum, and then he was actually saying chump. Anytime you have one of those little examples, we do that, and we can just kind of produce that uh, nice little ejective. Let's move to the voiced counterpart. Let's talk about implosives. Implosives are extremely bizarre sounds where apparently air comes into the mouth as opposed to going out of it, and it does so enough to produce voicing, and we can produce some stops this way. They're common in Vietnamese, so if you know what Vietnamese sounds like, that sound that you're probably hanging your hat on, that's an implosive sound. But we actually do them all the time. It's a kind of speech that imitates what we think a dumb person sounds like. I have no idea what it is, but it's just, it seems to be uniquely English. But this is when we say things like, whatever that is, that we all English speakers have, you know, some sort of access to, those are all implosives. They're all implosives. But it's like we don't have them anywhere else in the language. We're not even really connected to any language nearby that has them. We just think, well, this must be, I don't know, what dumb people sound like. And so there it is. <laughs> but you know this thing that I'm talking about, right? This speech pattern. You are familiar with it? Anybody? Never heard of it. What, really? No, I'm joking. Uh, okay. <laughs> I've, heard yes. I've heard it. Yes, I've heard it all the time. It's my native speech. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually heard it, but only in the foreign land of Texas. Oh, interesting. So maybe it's these foreign lands, Texas and California, where they do uh, these things. I think you hear it more often as a child than as an adult, since as an yes. adult, it seems impolite to exactly imitate stupid people by saying, unless no. Have, yeah. Unless you have children at home, and then you might hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> There are also a couple of sounds that are actually usually very difficult to distinguish, but I think that they occur in little bitty places in English. One of them is the voiceless palatal fricative. The other one is the voiceless velar fricative. And these occur in languages all over the place. I think you actually have both in German, right? Yeah. Yes. Ich and ach. Yeah. So in English, we actually do have this palatal fricative a little bit when a K is followed by a high tense vowel. So in things like key... What we actually do is like our tongue is so far forward that the aspiration on it actually kind of comes out as a palatal fricative. So if you try to slow down the release of the K in the word key, you're going to end up pronouncing a palatal fricative. We also have that one if you simply really stress that it was it was not just big, it was huge. Ah, yeah, that's true. That's right. Anytime the H comes in front of a Y or even probably in front of the high front vowel, so he. Oh, yeah, there it is. Look at that. Okay, so now we've determined that English has the sound. Also for the palatal fricative, I think this is my preferred noise when I'm making white noise like televisions used to have for those younger listeners. Televisions used to have this thing called white noise. It was a whole bunch of crazy static and it made an awful sound and it sounded like this. It occurs to me that younger people might not ever see that or hear that again. No, they heard it on their sleep machines when they were young. White noise to allow them to sleep. Ah, there you go. Now that everybody's asleep, where we get the velar fricative is this noise. I'm pretty sure that everybody makes it, but maybe if we don't, you can let me know. This noise that we make when we're really just kind of disgusted by something. You know, that noise. It's a velar fricative. You hear that one a lot too, right? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of speakers also have that epithetically in KL clusters. And so you'll hear clear. <laughs> you must speak clearly or we will not be able to understand you. Clear, clear. I don't know what I'm imitating, but it sounds like it could be something. 
actually, Trey pointed that one out to me many years ago, that scientists constantly are saying, or possibly mathematicians, someone technical, are constantly saying, clearly, clearly, clearly. <laughs> it comes up a lot in discussions in mathematics departments, and I was in one for a while. Everything is clear. <laughs> if you were just as smart as me, it would, it would be so clear to you. <laughs> I just completely forgot the most obvious example of the high front rounded vowel in English. At sporting events, anytime you have a team that has a high front vowel in their name and the audience is chanting their name, what they pronounce is actually a high front rounded vowel. So uh, just to, to give a recent example, let's go heat, let's go heat. They round the vowel so that they can project it louder. Ah, that makes sense. So that's one of them. Let's see, what are some other ones? Oh, of course, the voiceless bilabial fricative is basically what you do when you blow air out of your mouth and you're trying to blow out candles, right? (laughs) But with a bit more cheek puffing. I don't know if that's a linguistic feature that we have, plus cheek puffing. You know that Edward Sapir wrote an article denying exactly that claim many years ago, but he's dead now, so he can't argue with you. He wrote an entire article about that. <laughs> it was it was a significant part of the article saying that the blowing out a candle sound is not the same as the voiceless bilabial fricative. <laughs> All right, Sapir, I'm going to say that you're wrong. What are you going to do about it? Come back from the dead, then we'll talk. <laughs> Another one, but this one I think I have a stronger claim about. The voiceless pharyngeal fricative that's found in Arabic and other languages is the same sound that's produced when we are attempting to fog up a mirror or a window in order to write it. (laughs) A very useful. Yeah, if you just try to do an ordinary H, you really don't get kind of the, the, the force that you need to. Yeah. I could buy that, although it may be epiglottal. But something close. It may be epiglottal, but there are few languages that distinguish the pair. And those languages that do, I have never heard them myself, so I don't necessarily have to believe that they exist. I use the pharyngeal for fogging up window, but the epiglottal for fogging up a mirror. (laughs) (laughs) Does that have to do with the spittle content? It has something to do with transparency versus reflectivity. I have more, but I'll just do one more. I believe that the pharyngeal approximate is the sound that Homer makes when he is inspired to lust by food. So he makes the sound... That is either a pharyngeal or an epiglottal approximate, I guess, depending on just how much he wants that food. I think there's some sort of uvular trill in there also. I can't do the sound, actually. I can't do his particular sound, although I have a friend who can. I mean, there's also a certain amount of wetness in the throat that goes along with it. (laughs) Yeah, something more like that. (laughs) Stop strangling, David. Oh, wait, it was me. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, anybody got any others? I have one I'd like to do at the end here. Okay, go for it. I would like our listeners to listen to this, and if they haven't heard this particular sound before, to listen to what I'm describing and try it for themselves. And that, of course, is my favorite sound of all, which is the nasal, aggressive, voiceless, velar trill. <laughs> we'll give them a second. And if they're in a public place, they'll now notice that everyone's looking at them because that is, in fact, the pig snort. <laughs> Oh, well done. All right. If you can think of any more sounds that English speakers know but didn't know they knew, go ahead and send the IPA symbol and a description in an email to help at irs.gov. <laughs> anyway, that's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we interview the discoverer of Shakespeare's secret lost phony. Thanks for listening. 
Okay, I want to let you know, Trey, I am having a lot of problems with you in particular. That gives you a little more time to plot the coup. I figured he did this in his underwear at home. We tried, but they expelled us. Welcome again to Language Made Difficult. Yikes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are going to send me to an early grave. Number three. Number three. Number three. Number three. Oh, my God. I'm going to do this whole thing over. What the hell did I write?